0: Section 12 of beacon Lights of History, Volume 12, American Leaders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. John C. Calhoun, Part 1. 1782-1850. The Slavery Question. The extraordinary abilities of John C. Calhoun, the great influence he exerted as the representative of Southern interests in the National Legislature, and especially his connection with the slavery question, make it necessary to include him among the statesmen who, for evil or good, have powerfully affected the destinies of the United States. He is a great historical character, the peer of Webster and Clay in Congressional history, and more unsullied than either of them in the virtues of private life. In South Carolina he was regarded as little less than a demigod, and until the anti-slavery agitation began he was viewed as among the foremost statesmen of the land his elevation to commanding influence in congress was very rapid and but for his identification with partisan interests and a bad institution there was no office in the gift of the nation to which he could not reasonably have aspired john caldwell calhoun was born in seventeen eighty two of highly respectable protestant irish descent in the Abbeville District, in South Carolina. He was not a patrician, according to the ideas of rich planters. He had but a slender school education in boyhood, but was prepared for college by a Presbyterian clergyman, entered the junior class of Yale College in 1802, and was graduated with high honors. He chose the law for his profession, studied laboriously for three years, spending eighteen months at the then-famous law school at Litchfield, Connecticut and gave great promise in his remarkable logical powers of becoming an eminent lawyer whatever abilities mr calhoun may have had for the law it does not appear that he practiced it long or to any great extent his taste and his genius inclined him to politics and having married a lady with some fortune he had sufficient means to live without professional drudgery After serving a short time in the state legislature of South Carolina, he was elected a member of Congress, and took his seat in the House of Representatives in 1811, at the age of twenty-nine. From the very first his voice was heard. He made a speech in favor of raising ten thousand additional men to our army to resist the encroachments of Great Britain, and to prepare for hostilities should the country drift into war. It was an able speech for a young man, and its scornful repudiation of reckoning the costs of war against insult and violated rights had a chivalric ring about it. Sir, I here enter my solemn protest against a low and calculating avarice entering this hall of legislation. It is only fit for shops and counting-houses. It is a compromising spirit, always ready to yield a part to save the residue. Here, at an early date, we hear the keynote of his life— hatred of compromises and half-measures. If it were necessary to go to war at all, he would fight regardless of expense. Thus Calhoun began his public career as an advocate of war with Great Britain. The old revolutionary sores had not yet had time to heal, and there was general hostility to England, except among the Virginia aristocrats and the Federalists of the North. Although a young man, Calhoun was placed upon the important committee of foreign affairs, of which he was soon made chairman. Calhoun's early speeches in Congress gave promise of rare abilities. The most able of them were those on the repeal of the embargo in 1814, on the Commercial Convention with Great Britain in 1816, on the United States Bank Bill and the Tariff the same year, and on the Internal Improvement Bill in 1817. The main subject which occupied Congress from 1812 to 1814 was the war with Great Britain during the administration of Madison, and afterwards till 1817 the great questions at issue were in reference to tariffs and internal improvements in the discussion of these subjects calhoun took broad and patriotic ground at that time we see no sectional interests predominating in his mind he favored internal improvements great permanent roads and even the protection of manufactures and a national bank On all these questions, his sectional interests at a later day led him to support the exact opposite of these early national views. Says von Holst, his speech on the new tariff bill, April 6, 1816, was a long and carefully prepared argument in favor of the whole economical platform on which the Whig party stood to the last day of its existence. Even Henry Clay and Horace Greeley have not been able to put their favorite doctrine into stronger language his final aim was the industrial independence of the united states from europe and this he thought could be obtained by protective duties calhoun's speeches during the six years that he was a member of the house of representatives were so able as to attract the attention of the nation and in eighteen seventeen monroe selected him as his secretary of war and he made a good executive officer in this branch of the public service putting things to rights and bringing order out of confusion living on terms of friendship with john quincy adams and other members of the cabinet planning military roads introducing a system of strict economy in his department and making salutary reforms he tolerated no abuses he was disposed to do justice to the indians and raise them from their degradation even seeking to educate them when it was more than probable that they would return to their barbaric habits a race as it would seem from experience very difficult to civilize adams thus spoke of his young colleague mr calhoun is a man of fair and candid mind of honorable principles of quick and clear understanding of cool self-possession of enlarged philosophical views and of ardent patriotism he is above all sectional and factious prejudices more than any other statesman of this union with whom i have ever acted a very different verdict from what he wrote in his diary in eighteen thirty one Judge Storey wrote of him in 1823 in these terms, I have great admiration for Mr. Calhoun, and think few men have more enlarged and liberal views of the true policy of the national government. The post he held, however, was not Calhoun's true arena, but one which an ambitious young man of thirty-five could not well decline from the honor it brought. The secretaryship of war is the least important of all the cabinet offices in time of peace, and was especially so when the army was reduced to six thousand men. Its functions amounted to little more than sending small detachments to military posts, making contracts for the commissariat, visiting occasionally the forts and fortifications, and making a figure in Washington society. It furnished no field for extensive operations or the exercise of remarkable qualities of mind. But inasmuch as it made Calhoun a member of the cabinet, it gave him an opportunity to express his mind on all national issues and exercise an influence on the president himself. It did not make him prominent in the eyes of the nation he was simply the head of a bureau although an important personage in the eyes of the cadets of west point and of some lazy lieutenants stationed among the indians but whatever the part he was required to play he did his duty showed ability and won confidence he doubtless added to his reputation else he would not have been talked about as a candidate for the presidency selected as a candidate for the vice-presidency and chosen to that position by northern votes as he was in 1824 when the election was thrown into the house of representatives and the friends of henry clay made adams instead of jackson president calhoun's popularity with all parties resulted in his election as vice-president by a very large popular vote he deserved it the day had not come for the ascendancy of mere politicians and their division of the spoils of office The condition of the slaveholding states at this period was most prosperous. The culture of cotton had become exceedingly lucrative. Rich planters spent their summers at the North in luxurious independence. It was the era of general good feeling. No agitating questions had arisen. Young men at the South sought education in the New England colleges. Manufacturing interests were in their infancy and had not as yet excited Southern jealousy. Commercial prosperity in New England was the main object desired, although the war with Great Britain had proved disastrous to it. Political influence seemed to center in the southern states. These states had furnished four presidents out of five. The Great West had not arisen in its might—it had no great cities—but Charleston and Boston were centers of culture and wealth, and on good terms with each other, both equally free from agitating questions and both equally benignant to the institution of slavery which the Constitution was supposed to have made secure forever. The Adams administration was notable for nothing but beginnings of the tariff question and the Protectionist Act of 1828, the growth of the Democratic Party, the final intensity of the presidential campaign of 1828, and the election of Jackson, with Calhoun as Vice-President. As the incumbent of this office for two terms, Mr. Calhoun did not make a great mark in history. His office was one of dignity and not of power, but during his vice presidency, important discussions took place in Congress which placed him, as presiding officer of the Senate, in an embarrassing position. He was between two fires, and gradually became alienated from the two opposing parties to whom he owed his election. He could go neither with Adams nor with Jackson on public measures, and both interfered with his aspirations for the presidency. His personal relations with Jackson, who had been his warm friend and supporter, became strained after his second election as vice-president he took part against Jackson in the president's undignified attempt to force his cabinet to recognize the social position of mrs Eaton further it was divulged by crawford who had been secretary of the treasury in monroe's cabinet when calhoun was secretary of war that the latter had in eighteen eighteen favored a censure of jackson for his unauthorized seizure of spanish territory in the florida campaign during the seminole war and this increased the growing animosity what had been an alienation between the two highest officers of the government ripened into intense hatred which was fatal to the aspirations of calhoun for the presidency for no man could be president against the overpowering influence of jackson this was a bitter disappointment to calhoun for he had his heart set on being the successor of jackson in the presidential chair there were two subjects which had arisen to great importance during mr calhoun's terms of executive office which not only blasted his prospects for the presidency, but separated him forever from his former friends and allies. One of these was the tariff question, which gave him great uneasiness. He opened his eyes to see that protection and internal improvements, so ably advocated by Henry Clay, and even by himself in 1816, were becoming the policy of the government to the enriching of the North. True it was only an economical question, but it seemed to him to lay the axe to the root of Southern prosperity. It was his settled conviction that tariffs for protection would increase the burdens of the South by raising the price of all those articles which it was compelled to buy, and that large profits on articles manufactured in the United States would only enrich the northern manufacturers. The South, being an agricultural country exclusively, naturally sought to buy in the cheapest markets, and therefore wanted no tariff except for revenue. When Mr. Calhoun saw the protectionist duties were an injury to the slaveholding states, he reversed entirely his former opinions. And what influence he could exert as the presiding officer of the Senate was now displayed against the Adams party, which had favored his election to the vice-presidency, and, of course, alienated his northern supporters, especially Adams, who had now turned against him, and as bitterly denounced as once he had favored and praised him. Calhoun now had both the Jackson and Adams parties against him, though for different reasons up to this time until the agitation of the tariff question began mr calhoun had not been a party man he was regarded throughout the country as a statesman rather than as a politician but when manufactures of cotton and woolen goods were being established in lowell lawrence dover great falls and other places in new england wherever there was a water power to turn the mills it became obvious that a new tariff would be imposed to protect these infant industries and manufacturing interests everywhere the tariff of eighteen twenty four had borne heavily on the south producing great irritation and very naturally the planters complained that they had to bear all the burdens of protection without enjoying its benefits that the things they had to buy had become dearer while the things produced and exported found a less market financial ruin stared them in the face it seemed to them a great injustice that the interests of the planters should be sacrificed to the monopolists of the north in the defence of southern interests mr calhoun in the senate at first appealed to reason and patriotism it is true that he now became a partisan but he had been sent to congress as the champion of the cotton lords he was no more unpatriotic than webster who at first as the representative of the merchants of boston advocated freer trade in the interest of commerce and afterwards, as the representative of Massachusetts at large, turned round and advocated protective duties for the benefit of the manufacturer? It is a nice question as to where a congressman should draw the line of advocacy between local and general interests. What are men sent to Congress for, except to advance the interests entrusted to them by their constituents? When are these to be merged in national considerations? Calhoun's mission was to protect southern interests, and he defended them with admirable, logical power. He was one of three great masters of debate in the Senate. No one could reasonably blame him for the opinions he advanced, for he had a right to them, and if he took sectional ground he did as most party leaders do. It was merely a congressional fight. But when, after the Tariff of 1828, it appeared to Calhoun that there was no remedy That protection had become the avowed and permanent policy of the government, that the tobacco and cotton of the South, being the chief bulk of our exports, were paying tributes to northern manufacturers, which were growing strong under protection of federal taxes on competing imports, and that the South was menaced with financial ruin, he took a new departure, the first serious political error of his life, and became disloyal to the Union. In July 1831 he made an elaborate address to the people of South Carolina, in which, discussing the theoretical relations of the states to the Union, he put forth the doctrine that any state could nullify the laws of Congress when it deemed them unconstitutional, as he regarded the existing tariff to be. He looked upon the state, rather than the Union of States, as supreme, and declared that the state could secede if the Union enforced unconstitutional measures this as von hoist points out practically meant that whenever different views are entertained about the powers conferred by the constitution upon the federal government those of the minority were to prevail an evident absurdity under a republican government in june eighteen thirty two was passed another tariff bill offering some reductions but still based on protection as the underlying principle in consequence south carolina entirely subservient to the influence of calhoun who in August issued another manifesto, passed in November the nullification ordinance to take effect the following February. As already recited, President Jackson took the most vigorous measures sustained by Congress and gave the nullifiers clearly to understand that if they resisted the laws of the United States, the whole power of the government would be arrayed against them. They received the proclamation defiantly, and the governor issued a counter-one. It was in this crisis that Calhoun resigned the Vice Presidency, and was immediately elected to the United States Senate, where he could fight more advantageously. Then the President sent a message to Congress requesting new powers to put down the nullifiers by force, should the necessity arrive, which were granted, for he was now at the height of his popularity and influence. The nullifiers enraged him, and though they abstained from resorting to extreme measures, they continued their threats. The country appeared to be on the verge of war. The party leaders felt the necessity of a compromise, and Henry Clay brought forward in the Senate a bill which, in March 1833, became a law which reduced the tariff. It apparently appeased the South, not yet prepared to go out of the Union, and the storm blew over. There was no doubt, however, that had the South Carolinians resisted the government with force of arms they would have been put down, for Jackson was both infuriated and firm he had even threatened to hang calhoun as high as hayman an absurd threat for he had no power to hang anybody except one with arms in his hands and then only through due process of law while calhoun was a senator and yet using only legitimate means to gain his ends in the compromise which clay effected, the south had the best of the bargain and in view of it the culmination of the irrepressible conflict was delayed nearly thirty years Calhoun himself maintained that the Compromise Tariff of 1833 was due to the resistance which his state had made, but he also felt that the force bill with which Congress had backed up the President was a standing menace, and, as usual with him, he looked forward to impending dangers. The Compromise Tariff, which reduced duties to 20% in the main and made provision for still further reduction, found great opponents in the Senate and was regarded by Webster as anything but a protection bill nor was Calhoun altogether satisfied with it. It was received with favor by the country generally, however, and South Carolina repealed her nullification ordinance. That subject being disposed of for the present, the attention of Congress and the country was now turned to the President's war on the United States Bank. As this most important matter has already been treated in the lecture on Jackson, I have only to show the course Mr. Calhoun took in reference to it. He was now fifty-three years old, in the prime of his life and the full vigor of his powers. In the Senate he had but two peers, Clay and Webster, and was not in sympathy with either of them, though not in decided hostility, as he was towards Jackson. He was now neither Whig nor Democrat, but a South Carolinian, having in view the welfare of the South alone, of whose interests he was the recognized guardian. It was only when questions arose which did not directly bear on Southern interests that he was the candid and patriotic statesman sometimes voting with one party and sometimes with another he was opposed to the removal of deposits from the united states bank and yet was opposed to a renewal of its charter his leading idea in reference to the matter was the necessity of divorcing the government altogether from the banking system as a dangerous money power which might be perverted to political purposes in pointing out the dangers he spoke with great power and astuteness for he was always on the lookout for breakers he therefore argued against the removal of deposits as an unwarrantable assumption of power on the part of the president which could not be constitutionally exercised here he agreed with his great rivals while he was more moderate than they in his language he made war on measures rather than on men personally regarding the latter as of temporary importance of passing interest so far as the removal of deposits seemed an arbitrary act on the part of the executive he severely denounced it as done with a view to grasp unconstitutional power for party purposes thus corrupting the country and as a measure to get control of money said he with money we will get partisans with partisans votes and with votes money is the maxim of our political pilferers He regarded the measure as part of the spoils system, which marked Jackson's departure from the policy of his predecessors. Calhoun detested the system of making politics a game, since it would throw the government into the hands of political adventurers and mere machine politicians. He was too lofty a man to encourage anything like this, and here we are compelled to do him honor. Whatever he said or did was in obedience to his convictions. He was above and beyond all deceit and trickery and personal selfishness his contempt for political wire-pullers amounted almost to loathing he was incapable of doing a mean thing he might be wrong in his views and hence might do evil instead of good but he was honest in his severe self-respect and cold dignity of character he resembled william pitt his integrity was peerless he could neither be bought nor seduced from his course private considerations had no weight with him except his aspiration for the presidency and even that seems to have passed away when his disagreement with jackson put him out of the democratic race and when the new crisis arose in southern interests to which he ever after devoted himself with entire self-abnegation End of section 12.